Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host, and you'll find us here on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m., but that's 10 a.m. New York Eastern U.S. time. You could be anywhere in the world since we're global. You can catch all our back shows, including this one later today, in our archive at visionaries.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And be sure to download our new app for iPhone and Android with which you can listen to us live, which you can also do at prn.fm. And also hear back shows on our app. And also remember whether it's with the app or with uh, just going uh, on your browser to prn.fm, you can Bluetooth to your radio. In your car. (laughs) I have an older car, so I actually physically plug it in. On Visionaries, we talk with visionaries in the arts, technology, science, culture. And today, my special guest is M.J. Dorian. He's got another name, but if you go to M.J. Dorian, that's M as a Mary, J-D-O-R-I-A-N.com. And since you're probably online, hop over right now. You'll find out more about him. And he's an award-winning composer who writes music for film and television. In 2016, he took out this new identity. And go to his website. You'll find him in a gas mask. Really scary. (laughs) Cool stuff. And so he's right now working on a dark pop and hip-hop album. So, MJ, tell us, what is a music producer today? Well, first, greetings, John. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. So, music producers today. Um, I mean, throughout time, the the, the moniker or, or the uh, position of a music producer has, has changed with the technology that's been available to um, create music and, and disparate, dispense, you know, and, and create an audience. So, music producer today is is a pretty broad term where basically what's what's unique about it is that a music producer has also become the artist. Cool. And um, if you look at uh, music producers like uh, Mark Ronson, uh, for example, uh, um, and you can even maybe even reference someone like Damon Albarn, who uh, is the songwriter but kind of acts as a music producer of Gorillaz as well, where the... Music producer can be the driving creative force of a project, of an album, and bring together uh, a number of different artists that normally wouldn't work together and create an album where it sits under the umbrella of a certain theme, um, thematic idea or style, and oftentimes the music producer might also be songwriting as well. Cool. So in, um, in, a, in those of us that have not been in recording studios. You see in movies those huge control boards with dozens and dozens of sliders that go up and down and switches and everything. What, how, if you're just working with your, uh, with your MacBook Pro, uh, what can you, what's the quality of what you can do compared to a real recording studio? So not everything can be done on a, 
they say everything can be done, you know, with GarageBand, but um, that's that's to a certain extent a misnomer and a, a, a simplifying of what's actually happening. So someone can learn the basics of what happens in a studio on a laptop, let's say, and with a decent microphone at home. Uh, now the quality that you'll get from that, it doesn't mean that that's going to be comparable to what an official album. Uh, release might be basically like the basics of it is there and anybody can do it and the freedom of that is that anybody can release it and put it out there and and develop a a fan base but as far as the final quality is you know um, there's still something to be said for having an engineer who knows how to do recording you know who studied four years just to do that and uh, having somebody who's acting as a producer uh, who sees like the vision overall and, and can tell you, you know, what direction to take things. So you can make a movie on an iPhone, but yeah. maybe you'd want it. It'd be nice if you had the real stuff. Yeah, you could definitely make a movie on an iPhone. And I think there's something to be said for people who are, who are visionaries and can take that medium and figure out what to do best with it. But um, usually the people that do have success, because there have been like, uh, like a movie, uh, Tangerine, that actually got into Sundance, was completely shot on iPhone. And um, but those people have a background in film. They know what it is to shoot a film, edit it. Um, they they can see the strengths of the medium and the weaknesses, and they will obviously um, choose angles and lighting that uh, that trend toward the strengths of you know the, if it's an iPhone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So since we're talking about recording, uh, let's play an excerpt from your. Um, your, what should we call it, music video. We won't see the video, but we will hear the music. Uh, Bloodlust, which our listeners can find on YouTube. What? Go to YouTube and search Bloodlust. Should that do it? Uh, it? Probably one word, MJ Dorian, and then on my channel, or MJ Dorian with Bloodlust. Cool. Okay, so let's hear a bit of that, and then we'll go back and talk about what it all means. Yeah. 
She tell him use me up however you want, baby. Yeah, you can abuse me. I got nothing to lose. Yeah, we got nothing to lose. So let's go up to your room where we can put it on tape. Boy, you got something to say. If you got something to say, speak. If you got something to say, I got this four-inch blade. Something to say, boy. Speak if you got something to say. You're in well. Let's urge all our listeners, as soon as you have an opportunity, hop over to YouTube and put in all one word, M.J. Dorian, and then put in uh, Bloodlust. You'll find the song with the video, which is really fantastic. And uh, so how what's involved in producing something like that? How many people? How long? What was the effort? Sure. So the effort can go back um, could be f- quite a few months to produce something like that and depends how long you've been waiting before you can produce it in terms of writing the song. So on that one, um, if we go back, because as a, as a producer, I'm also songwriting. So songwriting-wise, maybe the song was written like six months before it even got started with an official vocalist. So then I found this amazing singer, um, uh, Leah Capelli, who, uh, who's living here in Brooklyn right now, but um, she's from Arizona originally. And other than that, I mean, you find your singer, you have your song, um, 
myself as a producer, I really wear too many hats, so I like to do everything. So usually um, you'd be working with a little bit more of a team effort where you might have a singer and then you have your key people that maybe would work on just the beat because these days the beat is, is pretty important with a lot of things being influenced by hip-hop and, and, and hip-hop is very beat-centric. So you'd have someone maybe who works on the beat, somebody who would mix the thing, uh, somebody who might help with the arrangement because uh, in this one... Um, there's actual horns playing, so like we have uh, trumpets and saxophones. But um, as a music nerd and composer, I kind of really wanted to do that too. So I ended up doing the, the horn arrangement. And so even though occasionally, you know, most of the time it is a little bit more of a team effort. But I just, I can't help but want to do all of it. Because if it's something that I haven't done before, like a specific horn arrangement, I, I've, it's a process of growth for me. So I kind of enjoy that element of it. And then you got to get into the studio, and we've, we went to a few different studios, one to record the vocal at uh, Smash Studios in Manhattan, another to record the, the horns at uh, the brewery in, in Brooklyn. Um, oh, and the drums also, so we got a drummer, which we recorded at a, uh, a haunted mansion on Staten Island called a Kreischer Mansion. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you have both drums and uh, digital beats? Yeah, it was a mixture. Yes, 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 yes. The, the, the realistic drums you can really hear come in during the choruses, which are more like of the um, nostalgic feel where she, where she has a lot of like reverb on her vocals and like you hear the drum rolls and stuff like that. The, uh, those are more the pure drums. And then in the verses, which are more a beat, um, are a mixture of the synthesized drums too. Wow. So let's uh, back up and find out who is MJ Dorian, uh, where were you born? How did you get into what you're doing? What kind of things do you do? Uh, you're quite a broadly creative figure. So let's get some quick background. Sure. Well, how far back do you want to start? Up to you. Um, uh, I think it would be fruitful to start not too far back. Okay. Um, I'm not originally from New York. I mean, I was born in Poland. So I have the immigrant roots. Um, we came here when I was I started kindergarten in New York City, basically. And um, I still speak Polish. But uh, I'm a New Yorker for, for all intents and purposes. And I've, I feel that actually influences my, my decisions creatively and probably um, it, uh, helps me stay more on the darker side of things. Mm. For whatever reason, um, that influence of living in, in a city kind of like New York City, which you know some people might say um, would will eat you alive if you're not, <laughs> yeah if you're not one of these people that's willing to work you know insane amounts. Uh, so that keeps me on the darker side of things. I, I honestly think. But uh, beyond that, I went to high school for visual art. I didn't really do music. Um, Officially, until I went into college, I was more visually art-oriented. I did music on my own, like rock bands and stuff, throughout high school. And then I did the classical music thing in, in uh, Brooklyn College. Got a bachelor's in writing for orchestra. Cool. And, yeah, and just pursuing uh, film scoring for a while as my career. And then got the master's from NYU in film scoring. And um, long story short, at some point, I decided uh, that... Writing music for other people is great, but I wanted to also 
do my own thing, like, like just so creatively something that I had complete control over because usually when you're working on a film, it's somebody else's vision and you're providing your craft, some would say prostituting yourself for, for their purpose, for their vision. And uh, that's really rewarding too, but. Right. Yeah. So what do you want to observe about the state of film scoring today? What, what, are, what do people think? What, what are the influences? Where does the music come from? So, I mean, if we're, just the commentary on the state of film scoring, yeah. I would say one of the things that actually made me want to pursue something more individual and that I had more control over was I didn't feel um, film scoring was any more as melodic and musically inclined as it once was, let's say, in like even the 90s and before. Um, all the classic film scores that you can imagine. Usually, if, if it had orchestra, it was, was a very musical sense of things, or a traditional musical sense. Um, within the last decade and more, it became more about um, pulling back, and the music is kind of like just an ambience and leaves room for, in a sense, for, for the viewer to enter into the, the picture without being told, I guess, what to feel is the one, in, one interpretation of it. But the other thing that ends up happening is, is that as a composer, you end up writing a lot more of like sound beds, stuff that isn't as interesting to work on, honestly. And so you're maybe just working with rhythms and, and percussive things and um, long notes that you start to write like a more florid or romantic melody. And then the director's like, yeah, no, no, we don't, we don't like that. <laughs> like, like <laughs> no, we don't need that. And I'm like, all right, so what am I even here for? Just get like a sound library or something, you know, like, what do you need? Right. So we, uh, when we talked about the idea of doing this show, we were discussing creativity. So let's um, go into what are your thoughts? What are you, th what are you thinking about creativity? What, how does it grow out of the work you do? And uh, what are you, th what are you thinking? So, yeah. From high school, from all the way from back then, a number of years, um, I've always been fascinated by uh, the creative process and, and just in general um, how our thoughts r relate to what's going on unconsciously in our mind. So throughout the many years that I've been creating everything from visual art to, to music to poetry, what have you, any, anything I end up kind of at the moment um, feeling needs to be explored. Uh, I've been aware of what's going on in that creative process. And I've even gone so far as writing down a lot of these things and um, noticing the, the trends of what ends up happening in, in, a, in a healthy creative process, like when things are working really well versus when, when you hit a wall and making little notes along the way of like, well, what is it that's happening? And so I've become um, both fascinated and, and kind of I think I have an insight into what, what that is. So one of those ideas that I've started to recognize, even in other people's creative process when I, when I read interviews or, or talk to other people who are also creative, is, is there tends to be like a three-stage element to the creative process. And um, the three stages as... as I'm starting to refer to them 
are stage one is inspiration, which has its own subsections, which we can talk about. So there's inspiration. Stage two I call ontogenesis. Um, traditionally, ontogenesis is, is a reference uh, in biology of, of, of an organism developing itself. And that stage is usually uh, where the work is done. And then the third stage would be maturation, and that would be the process and the final follow-through, let's say, uh, involved in, in finishing a work. So before we go into that, my um, I've been thinking a lot about creativity as well. And this show is named after my book, Visionary yes. Creativity. So the show is Visionaries. And one of the things, so I <laughs> look at a very big picture. So I teach history of architecture, part of a survey from, you know, caves to today. Mm. So one of the things we observe is how recent creativity is. Mm. In other words, if you, you can find, oh, let's just take Egypt. So I'm not an Egyptologist, so I can't. What do I know about Egyptian art? But if I look at uh, Egyptian murals from the pyramids, about 2500 B.C., or from the time of Ramses, which is about 1700 B.C., mm. like a 1,000 years later, and then from the time of Cleopatra, which is like 30 B.C., so 1700 years later, I can't tell the difference. I mean, how hard does a culture have to work to make sure <laughs> there's no creativity, nothing changes, nobody mm. is anything new? Mm. And that's really what human culture has been like forever. Mm. So you look, for example, in the case of Lascaux, you see images which are uh, we're pretty sure are shamanistic images depicting. And then there are shamans today engaging in those rituals. So that's 15,000 years. <laughs> mm. How do you make sure nobody does anything new for 15,000 years? Mm. And probably, you know, if anybody does, <laughs> they get eliminated. Mm. And, and that way you make sure uh, you make sure nothing new happens. So I'm a big fan of Joseph Campbell and his most monumental work, which very few people read because it's a real monster is four volumes on world mythology called The Masks of God. Hmm. So his his famous work is The Hero with a Thousand Faces. Right. And his argument there is all myths, the, the monomyth. So he's really talking about the hero journey myth, but you might almost exaggerate and say all myths are the same myth. Hmm. It's a story of separation from ordinary reality, a journey to a realm of fabulous forces and encountering the mystery and winning a decisive victory. And that's uh, fairy tales, mythic characters, Star Wars, on and on. It's all the whole outline of what can go on in um, uh, a myth, novel, religious figure is outlined there. Well, then he wrote... Uh, the Mass of God, in which he looks at the differences in mythologies. What so it's the four volumes of primitive mythology, oriental mythology, occidental mythology, and creative mythology. Mm. 
And creative mythology refers to the West, where creativity is demanded. So, like, this is a while ago. It wouldn't happen today. But looking at other cultures, I had a student from a particular culture, and I said, okay, so next week, chapter three. And this student comes in the next week. He says, that was a lot to memorize. <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, you know, just skim it, you know. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, and then even even this semester, uh, going around the room and talking to all the students, and I'd say 80% of them were not born in the United States. Mm. 20% of them are Chinese. You know, schools are mm. taking Chinese to fill seats as Americans can't do fractions and can't handle college. Mm. <laughs> but um, so uh, where did you go to school before and what was it like? And so this one woman says this is very different. And I said, how? She said, well, like this, meaning the fact that we're going around and she's talking. <laughs> right, right. She can talk. <laughs> I'll do that where she came from. Yeah, it's a privilege. Yeah. Right. Or just a different approach to education. Mm. We, of course, we think it's better. So um, just the idea of what is creativity and do we want it? Right. And uh, – uh, you know, I, the example I like to give is – so. And, and in my work, I don't distinguish between art and business. Hmm. You know, that um, um, Elon Musk and Sergey and, and Larry and um, Mark Zuckerberg mm-hmm. are creative figures. Sure. And um, just the way artists would be. <laughs> but, um, y- you know – when you get something that radically creative that changes the world, the yellow cab taxi industry is not too happy about Uber. <laughs> you know, it's like it's wiping out literally billions of dollars in pe- that people have invested in Absolutely. medallions. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, it, the, those cultures that don't allow creativity, they have a reason. Mm. You know, they're protecting something. Now, it, suppressing creativity might be good for established industries, established culture, but maybe not good for the customer or right. the audience. You know, the, uh, finally, I can get a taxi in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> After I remember, you know, in my several decades teaching at Pratt Institute, maybe I've seen a yellow cab maybe five times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but you know now I can uh, now I can just call up uh, an Uber and right. head for the airport. But uh, to, to, to something you said about the the amount of creativity, let's say in in more what we would describe as ancient cultures, um, I think it's a tricky idea though to to say or for us to even be able to say that maybe there was less creativity or, or that the society didn't value it as much because we, we don't have the full picture of what were they doing with their stories? You know, what were they, what were they what were, how elaborate were their, were their narratives they were telling each other? Because these are oral cultures a lot of times. You know, what were they doing with their pottery? You know, a lot of it's lost to us. What were they doing with their jewelry? What were, you know, what were the innovations in, in those smaller um, creative fields that end up being lost to time. I'm I'm usually one to believe that uh, the way we are now as as humans, with the, with the 
let's say, the, the, the propensities for certain psychological thought and a certain percentage of the population has, has uh, their mind more open to experiences and creativity, creative fields. I tend to think that we've been that way for a long time, like the, 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 the dispersion of like, who are the logical thinkers more, more than likely? Who are the ones that are going to innovate things? Who are the ones that, like the percentage-wise, like levels? I have a feeling we, we've been like pretty similar strata of, of those for, for, you know, quite a number of thousand years. So let's go to your first stage of inspiration. What, what, what do you mean by that? And what would be some examples? Sure. So one interesting thing about inspiration, you, you can definitely say um, it's organic. It's an organic process. I mean, like a lot of creativity is an, an organic process, but inspiration particularly. And sometimes when, when I have inclination to, to do something like an idea that eventually turns into or, or some kind of, I would say, you know, work of art, um, is it feels like a pressure in the brain and mm. you don't know what that is but you know that there's this pressure that says you have to explore that and I don't know if that happens for everyone but I'm assuming it happens for most people who are, I guess you could label as creatives right that have a have an inclination to go do this creative task instead of making money and acquiring material goods right so the people who who have the inclination to do this, I, I assume it's similar to what happens in my brain, which is there's a there's a pressure, and that pressure will not let up. It sometimes gets more intense until you decide, all right, I'm going to figure out what this thing is. And then you unpack it, and you see, okay, I'm supposed to be working on this. But you don't really think that way. You kind of just feel the pressure, and you react to it. And then there's a there's a certain sense of, of, of pleasure and, and release from... Um, just taking a few steps even forward in, in, in pursuing that. So yeah. let, let's um, – uh, I'm going to suggest a, an earlier step, and that is that let's say that pressure is um, – I use a strong word – dissatisfaction <laughs> with something about the status quo, whether mm. it's in the culture or in the, in the genre, and – which implies a mastery of the status quo mm. from which to then move forward or change. Or, so what are your thoughts about that? In other words, does creativity always – can it be something – just a new inspiration or is it built on things that exist? Sure. So <laughs> – excuse me. In, in actually reading uh, some of your book, I found um, something that you said that I, I think we, we quite converge on. And I had go, been going through my notes from uh, a while ago, and I found a note I had made around uh, 2013 that kind of um, nicely coincides with, with, with something you were talking about. Um, I just have to pull up because I took a, a quick well, picture. Of while uh, while here it is. our guest is looking, mm -hmm. uh, this is John Lobel. We are on Visionaries on PRN.FM, Progressive Radio Network, and our guest is M.J. Dorian. So you found it. I did find it. 
So this excited me when I read it in your book because I was like, I feel like I've thought that before. So in about 2013, since I've been you know jotting down these these ideas about creative process, I, I had wrote this note to self: to create art which matters and resonates, it must always be made with the pre-existing knowledge of standards in that genre or medium. And I think that can be extended to culture as well. Yeah, that that sounds so restrictive, and as a Wild and crazy person from the 60s. <laughs> sure. I, you know, I, I, um, uh, I, I, my inclination would be not to think that way. But if you look at people re- we respect, mm. you know, and any one of us can make their own list. But uh, I find that in most cases they have mastered the genre that they overthrow. Right. And right. so that there's, you know, so there's some evidence there that that's how it does, in fact, work. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to know where the weaknesses are in everything from the genre to the culture to the medium you're working in to be able to either subvert it if you want to flip it on its head or to now create like the next level version of it. Right. Or find what's missing. You know, for example, I I still, at various times, try different ways to express Einstein's special relativity. Hmm. And, you know, I recently came across two new ones. One hmm. of them is that, okay, the problem was that the speed of light remains the same no matter the moving of the measurer. So you would think if you're approaching a flashlight very quickly, the light would be coming faster Mm. and if you're retreating from it. But 1896, Michael Samorley were able to measure, and they said no. (laughs) uh, And they were using the the movement of the earth. Mm. So if we go, you know, with the movement of the earth or perpendicular, no matter what they did, it was always the same. Mm. And so... um, Basically, what Einstein's doing is saying, okay, um, the um, uh, electromagnetic theory could derive the speed of light, Hmm. but speed with reference to what? Hmm. Um, And it was assumed absolute space. There was an invisible grid going throughout the universe that you would be moving relative to. Mm. But if that grid's not there, then what happens? Relativity. <laughs> right, right. Uh, then another one, uh, I've always been bothered by, okay, that explosion took place on that star uh, 30 million years ago, and the light is just reaching us. Right, yeah. So that's something not right there. It's unsettling. When the light yeah. reaches us, that's simultaneous for us and them. Hmm. You know, and in no other case do you say, well, you know, wh- when does – do you, you know, you account for the uh, event moving away from us or whatever? The whole point of special relativity is you don't do that. There's no such thing as simultaneity. Mm. Uh, so um, there's a, a book I'm reading right now called Reality – The World is Not What We Think It Is by an Italian physicist whose name I'm not recalling right now. But it's um, 
on uh, loop quantum gravity. And he makes that point that what, what relativity really does is show a spread of time through which you cannot identify sim- simultaneity. Hmm. It, so it's just, and, you know, starting with something fundamental, Maxwell's equations, Maxwell's electrodynamic equations, they're still, oh, my God, he was assuming there was a frame of reference. There's mm-hmm. not. Wow. And then whole other things open up when you do that. Right. Uh, but you don't get there without Maxwell's uh, uh, equations. So anyway, that was a long uh, a wonky digression for uh, let's go from inspiration to um, ontogenetics. Oh, ontogenesis. Ontogenesis. Um, just, uh, just your mention of Einstein yeah. um, made me remember. There's a great quote from him, which I'm unfortunately going to, you know, paraphrase instead of uh, saying what it exactly was. Uh, but he said that he didn't see himself as a genius. He saw the difference between him and other thinkers of his time was that he was stubborn enough to um, stay with one idea and one um, work through one formula, let's say, uh, and one problem much longer than anyone else would have, that someone else would give up by that point. Right. And when he was working on special relativity, uh, Hilbert, one of the one of the greatest mathematicians of all time, was working on it, and Lorentz, and Einstein sort of starts with the Lorentz transformations, and uh, it was sort of a race on, and Mm, to this day, you can argue, did Hilbert really get there first? Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, and they had an exchange of letters where Mm. Hilbert says, I'm not going to challenge you. Take it. It's yours. Really? Because Hilbert already was the great mathematician of the past 200 years, so. Mm. But... um, uh, what Einstein was able to do is say, I'm going to assume there's no frame of reference. Mm. There's no absolute space. And one of his greatest supporters was Lorentz mm. after he, you know, published it. But Lorentz says, but there's still absolute space. He could never give that up. <laughs> <laughs> so just to say, you know, there's nothing against which to reference ourselves. Mm. That's pretty difficult. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of madness, yeah. Uh, and and it was his ability to, to stick with that, mm. you know, to go with that, that um, made him beat out the rivals. But, I mean, so I have a very, very layman's knowledge of, of theory of relativity. But would it be that um, that the speed of light is, is a frame of reference? That's, that's a way of thinking, right. Right, okay. So speed of light, everything is an absolute speed, right? and then something is half the speed of light or a quarter the speed of light. So it's a way. And then a measure of distance is how far will light go hmm. in one second, say. So right. then that's a distance. But So, yeah, that's a way of doing it. But then you get uh, up until World War I, um, a lot of – there were still empires in Europe. And, you know, the, the Tsar, the Russian Empire, the uh, uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, etc. And they saw themselves as descendants from Rome hmm. and, you know, the Roman Empire. So there was a, a referent. European culture is the dominant world culture, and it is built on the foundation of Rome. 
Now, what happens when all that goes away? Is Rome any better than ancient China, ancient India? Uh, right. You know, it it was the local uh, empire, so when it surrounded the Mediterranean. But there are other empires. There right. are other it's cultures. <laughs> yeah. So and so, all of a sudden, Europe breaks up into these nations. And, uh, you know, disintegrates in effect. Mm. And the Middle East that had been the Ottoman Empire breaks up and is still trying to sort that out today. Mm. But that's what happens when you lose this frame of reference. At the same time, uh, well, what are human beings? Well, they are the special, the special children of the creator. Mm-hmm. But what happens when, no, you know, 99% of our DNA is identical to chimpanzees. We just happen to have a somewhat bigger brain. Right. Yeah, but not quite as big as dolphins. And and 20% of our DNA is identical to yeast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and that's why we grow. Right? And yeast are pretty dumb. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden, all these, what happens how do you build a world without frames of reference? And it's called modernism. <laughs> right. Well, you know, postmodernism. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's the problem we're still dealing with today, basically. Right, right, right. So, but anyway, to go on to ontogenesis. Um, sure. So that one I haven't fleshed out as much as inspiration. So inspiration still has three phases we, we didn't talk about. Okay. What but, are those? But, oh, the three phases. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I would label them as feed your head. Incubation and Eureka. So the flow between those those three phases is also, you know, there's an organic element to it. And oftentimes we won't really see it as these stages or phases throughout the whole thing. So if we're talking uh, the first one, Feed Your Head, um, it's very much in line with what we were actually just talking about in terms of... Um, understanding the context of, of the work you're creating. So as an example, if, if I'm working on a film score, um, there's, there's an element of film scoring which really uh, coincides very nicely with that element, with, with that phase, which is when you start on a film, the producers send you what the current version of the film is and very oftentimes with what's called the temp score. So that's just the music that they've been using so far. So... What I end up doing, and what most composers will do, is they'll look at the film and they'll be like, okay, cool, all right, oh, I, oh, I see you use this music, okay. And then they kind of know the direction that they're already, that the producer or director is already familiar with pursuing musically. And so now, as a, as a creative, you take in those music influences, and in a sense, that's your feeding your head. Um, you're putting the influences into that uh, wonderful organic melting pot uh, uh, that starts to work its magic later on on its own but you have to put those in before you can make an an informed decision and before you can expect something uh, fruitful to come from your creative process right now would you uh besides immersing yourself in the thing you're going to be working on uh do you reference familiarity with past films and film scores, or is that just sort of in your unconscious? Yeah, probably both. Yeah, it's a fascinating idea, right? Um, yeah, so a lot of times, if I'm working, if we're still talking about films, I'll ask the director if um, there were any films that 
were very influential in, in making this one. And then I'll make sure to watch them because a lot of times they might not even know why they were influential. They just knew that, you know, it informed their decisions. And as you're watching that film, you might realize, oh, you know, the music is being used this way, so I should probably use it that way too. And But, but also, yeah, totally, I mean, as any kind of artist or writer or anything, everything you do comes with the baggage of all the time you've spent accruing influence and understanding. So, like, yeah, I think it's... it's I was just thinking of two things. My... My um, my mother, when she saw Serpico, she said, oh, it's Antigone, mm. uh, where, you know, is his loyalty to the truth or to his buddy cops? Right, right. Uh, is her loyalty to bury her brother or to the, the family? Mm. And um, there's a, a book, I think it's called The Writer's Journey by Volger on screenplays. Mm. And... It, it's a famous story where he had absorbed Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces mm. and wrote a seven-page memo for Disney um, creative people oh. about the outline of a hero journey movie, hmm. which everybody got interested in after Star Wars, which is, you know, like sure. textbook straight from sure. Hero with a Thousand Faces. And it became a real famous underground document and he expanded into a book. But he talks about thinking that way where when they're struggling with the Lion King. Right. And and finally someone said, It's Hamlet. <laughs> and the moment they had that then they knew how it was gonna unfold. Right. It's the structure for them, right? Right, right. For a narrative. I think I think though uh, the, the that that kind of the, the structure of like a hero's journey or any kind of archetypal story structure you can't make something good just by using it, right? It's like something that you sometimes even after the fact will look back and be like, oh, that's the structure we were working within. But if you if you try to just use that from the beginning, it doesn't necessarily, I think, give you like a brilliant work of art. It's not right. like a guarantee, right? Right. It takes great storytelling. Right. Which right. is just a, a skill. Right. I've, I've been working on – there's a novel sitting on my laptop for decades. Oh, yeah. And it, it just walked through it. You know, it, it walks – there's no – I don't uh, – apparently I don't have a storytelling sense. <laughs> 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 you know, and, to, and now I'm looking back and saying, yeah, why don't I in, – in this early incident, I can – foretell this thing that's going to come later oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. rather than just walking, you know, linearly through it. But it, it's not a natural instinct that I have. Mm. Right. I mean, I don't think it, it always has to be. I think there's still a lot you can do with with uh, your process as well. So you mean you don't have the natural instinct to structure a larger form? To, to tell a story and mm. give attention and, you know, it's like, it's Freeway, you know, a, a reasonable way to it's clear who the bad guy is, yeah. and she has to get him. Yeah. You know, well, wait a minute. It should turn out that wasn't the bad guy. At the last minute, we find out that it was this other person. <laughs> you know, there's got to be tension, surprise, dynamics. Right. You know, things have to happen. You can't just walk through it. <laughs> right. I mean, that's where we're actually that the skills of a screenplay writer come into play. That's what's. Their main focus, usually, I think, is taking something that might be a novel 
and then they can say like, okay, we need these, you know, ten beats, which, which you know, in theater, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the theater or, or in film, they also call them beats um, throughout the narrative, and they'll hammer them in whether that happened historically accurately or not. You know, that's that's kind of one of the the drawbacks of even making like a, a biography film is is you could tell the screenplay writer was like, well, we need this because that's what all films have. Rosebud, <laughs> right? <laughs> the we very need the opening rosebud. is you know, and now the whole what what what. Where'd that come from? What's the mystery? <laughs> yeah, What's yeah, Rosebud? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyway, we've got um, any more on uh, inspiration or do you want to go on to? Oh, Feed Your Head. And uh, we have uh, Incubation, which in some ways I'm, I'm very fascinated by that because that's that's really the magic of the creative process. That's where you go do something else, right? In a sense, yeah. It's, it's where um, that, that's what's going on behind the curtain is unseen to you. But you've you've fed your brain with enough things that I think the things that you have to feed your brain with are things you're genuinely curious about. So I think if there's a curiosity, then there's a mystery that's going to help you grow in some way. Let's say as as an artist or or that in that piece. So the incubation um, starts to occur almost like a garden growing behind the scenes when when those stacks of influences you've you've fed your head with start to interact with each other in your unconscious or your subconscious. And then you can harvest them uh, around the time when that eureka moment starts to occur. So we're going to run out of time. So let's go on to, sure. what what's this word? Ontogenesis. Ontogenesis. So that's the best word I've found to, to, that I can say describes the process of working on something deliberately to develop it and evolve it. Um, yeah, as a writer, I just I'm pretty good at just put something down. Yeah, yeah. And then whatever. Well, I'm trying to that that that. Fine, put that 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 down. <laughs> and then. You know, go back to it the next day and say, well, that isn't what I really meant was, you know, and it starts to flesh out. Yeah. So there's this actual working process. There is. And um, uh, it's and, not always pleasant either. And that involves the bed because mm. there's, there's, I print it out, then it's in a big binder, and that's on the bed with some books, you know, with my laptop in my lap. And uh, so then, then there's this whole workflow here. Yeah. Yeah, and everyone has to have that workflow, and it can be very individual. And yeah, like like when you were saying it, it's it's not always pleasant either as a work process. It can it can be painful, it can be frustrating. Um, all throughout it, there can be stops and starts where you where you struggle a little bit. And uh, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, from from most people's view, when they think of someone who's creative or an artist. They may think it's like a, a, a fun process, but it's just, it can be a lot of pain in that process. So yeah. A lot of growth that has to happen as, as you're trying to like, uh, just, I mean, in my case, like trying to find the damn perfect melody that works with this character or the right, right, the right three words to fit into the syllables I need in this lyric. Like it's just you go mad sometimes. Right. So it, it, it is, is uh, describe maturation. Right. So that one I've, I've I've been focusing on the first two the most so far. Matura- maturation would be basically the follow through of taking all the material you've created so far for for that project or that work, and 
um, now you're the captain of that ship and you have to see it through. Um, hopefully to, to the course or, or the end that, you know, it, it, the, the promise of the premise in a sense of, that you were developing. Even that stage, I recently was working on something that had, let's say, A, B, C. And <clears throat> I showed it to some other people and they had a real problem with C. Mm. I said, oh, maybe it's A, C, B. No <laughs> and then, you know, everything had to be jiggled a little bit. But, uh, oh, now it makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. And p- I think part of a good creative process is, is still being open to the idea of of changing the initial intention of your vision. Yeah, you yeah. never... Um, um, My my book on creativity started as a book on architecture, right. and my agent said, "No, make it about creativity in general. Architecture is too narrow." So I started working on it, and I started just, and then, the you know, there's all there's a whole body of material on creativity, and I said, "You know what? Why am I disagreeing with all this? Because I'm talking about something else. You know, I'm talking about." The kind of – and there's all kinds of creativity, but Mm -hmm. I'm addressing the um, kind of creativity that leads to major cultural change. Right. So if you – if we talked before about the modern world having no frames of reference and then you get something like Picasso's cubism, you know, where where you've lost perspective. Perspective is – an observer standing in a given spot. And in the moment you stand there, the horizon line is at your eye level. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The vanishing point is, is straight ahead. Um, what happens when you don't, that observer is uh, not fixed, is in motion? And um, so in, in creating cubism, Picasso and Brock are commenting on, engaged in, pushing forward this um, refereceless era mm-hmm, that we're mm-hmm. entering into, that they had this perception we were entering into. So they need creativity to do that, mm-hmm. but it, it's... So finally I found <clears throat> psychologists are now talking about small-c creativity and big-c creativity. Right. So... So listen, we got to wrap up. Any last words? Um, well, yeah, even the idea of the cubism, um, if it was created now, I don't think it would be as valuable artistically because uh, it's a different context. Oh, yeah. Right? So, so now what's our world today? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So listen, our guest today has been MJ Dorian. Go to mjdorian.com and... Well, they find links there to your music video? Yeah, no, everything's there. Great. So he's got a music video that we played the sound of at the beginning of the show. So you want to catch that, you'll find a link to it at his uh, on his website. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries. And you'll find this show on our archive at visionaries.podbean.com. See you next Monday. <laughs> <laughs>